how do people think this tastes good? That was the thought I had when I was seven years old. Just having drunk red wine for the first time at my first Holy Communion at St. Matthew's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. I remember thinking, what is going on with these people? And pause and ask the question, I think it might come to some of you. Red wine to a seven-year-old in church. The answer, of course, is if it was good enough for Jesus, apparently yes. Red wine, it's good. It happens in the church to the seven-year-olds. This is how some churches do it. Now, what made me not only, uh, which is what then, this taste, made me not only think it, but according to my mom, as I walked back down the aisle, I made one of these, you know, faces, always the ham, and apparently people thought that was funny. Now, that was my routine, minus the, you know, disgusting faces, but uh, that was my routine of going up and taking communion every Sunday for about the next 10 years of my life. Uh, Most Sundays, we'd go to church, sit through the service, till we got to the part where we all go to the front. We eat the bread, which was sometimes this homemade whole wheat bread, which someone from the congregation would have made, tasted very good. Sometimes it was that kind of styrofoam consistency wafer that some of you are familiar with as well, along with the red wine, which I, over time, got used to. But I will tell you something about my entire childhood taking communion every Sunday at church, I didn't really know why. I was told it was important, and it was one of the times when I would see uh, adults praying. So after you take communion, you're, you, you're to go back to your seat and pull down the kneeler and, and pray. And I would look around and I would see people, adults praying. And I remember thinking, what are they praying about? They look very serious. This seems really important. Am I supposed to be doing that? What important thing is happening here? And I didn't really know. This has been true uh, for me my whole life. If I don't get the why... I've got problems. If I understand the why, however, everything falls into place. So we're going to be exploring together today the why, and we'll end by participating in communion together. But I want to back up. Uh, We've been talking about this. We're in the second phase of our renewal series. In the fall, we talked about personal renewal. Now we're talking about community renewal. Specifically, what does it look like for our church community to be renewed. Last week, Pastor Mike uh, set up the necessity for gathering in small groups to find community, and today we're gonna talk about the role that sacraments play in that. And so we need to define the word sacrament. The word uh, has its roots in the Latin word sacramentum, which would have been translated every time the word mystery uh, in Greek would appear in Latin that, that would get translated as sacramentum. And if you look at the beginning of that word too, it, uh, it has the word sacred in it. And so sacred meaning holy. So it would not be a stretch to say that a sacrament is a holy mystery. Now throughout church history, there are two sacraments that have been recognized by really all Christian denominations. The first is baptism and the second is communion to the Lord's Supper. There are five more that are recognized by Catholic and Orthodox traditions, and an Anglican church would also say that these are kind of second-tier sacraments. We don't have time to talk much about these, but I am going to 
tell you what they are for those that are curious and to let you know that uh, they will be on the final. So you, if you want to take notes, you can, but the final's worth 25% of your grade, so it's up to you. Uh, here they are, the five R confirmation, which is the act of confirming what was done at your infant baptism, for those that, that do that. Anointing of the sick, marriage or holy matrimony, ordination of a priest, and confession along with absolution. The difference between those two categories, the first two were made special, made unique by Jesus, whereas the other five are mentioned in Scripture, but they're not, they don't have the same importance. So the etymology of sacrament is of a holy mystery, but the best church history definition comes to us from Augustine in the 5th century, who was the first to say that a sacrament is, the, is an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace. So that's why there's mystery. There's something happening on the outside, but that's just a sign of what's something deeper that's going on. So we're going to first look at, at baptism. And the last baptism that we celebrated here at the church was that, that last part of that video. Uh, that was at one church one day at our Crossroads campus in Grays Lake. How many of you were at that event that we had this past summer? It was, it was really, really fun. When I pulled up and saw they had this, you know, really cool kind of pop-up stage. It looked like Crossroads of Palooza. Like it was, it was, all the campuses came together. We had a service, we had a baptism. Um, and right before the baptism, someone said to me, oh, and Siler, you're ready to do your, your little spiel on baptism, right? And I said, I'm, I'm, my what? Uh, oh, no, no one told me about that, which sometimes happens. Communication doesn't, doesn't make it through. But I was like, I'll figure it out. I got 15 minutes, I can figure something out. And when you only have a short amount of time to think about something, it kind of, it focuses you. So the thing that I thought of first was, I thought about the people that were invited to the baptism that day. Maybe somebody who was a newer believer and they said, I'm getting baptized, mom, dad, brother, sister, whatever, friends, I want you to be there. And I thought, kind of thought their thoughts, the invited people, their thoughts, and I thought, I wonder what they're thinking, and I'm imagining that they're thinking that this whole thing is a little bit strange. It's a little bit weird. Like an infant baptism, for some reason, infant baptisms are very much normal in our culture. It's kind of the same thing, but it's it just, oh yeah, yeah, infant baptism, sprinkle in the water, that's sort of uh, normal. But the idea of an adult going to somewhere where they've got a little hot tub set up, right? With no, no jets. It's not really hot water, but you, you get in, you, you completely get drenched and then come back out. That's just seems odd. So I said that. I said, some of you might be here today and wondering, man, this is a little bit weird. But I, I pointed out, I said, you know, actually, most things in life are weird. We've just stopped thinking about them. I've got a whole list. I'm not going to go through the list, but one of them on the list is that, you know, our skin is like a big Ziploc bag that just keeps our organs in. Like if we didn't have skin, our organs would all be falling out, but it's really, it just, it keeps them all in. That's one of them. The one that I, I mentioned at the service is I said, you know, the, the thing that's weird that's happening right now is that we are spinning a thousand miles per hour, we are spinning on a big, you know, round thing while hurtling through the air at 67,000 miles per hour. No one's talking about it, but it's happening right now. And it's weird, right? It's very, very strange. But we get used to things and we think, no, that's normal. Well, no, no, a lot of life is weird. So it's not really 
If you embrace, if you embrace that life is weird, baptism makes more sense, but there actually is purpose behind it. So why do we do it? Well, we do it first because Jesus did it. Jesus himself was baptized by John the Baptist, not because he needed to repent. This was a baptism of repentance. Jesus didn't need to repent, but this is recorded in Matthew. And John himself was uncomfortable with this idea. Look at at Matthew 3, uh, verses 13 to 15 here. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. Well, that language is a little bit confusing. What, what, What did Jesus mean by that? Eugene Peterson translates this, this way, he says that Jesus' reply is God's work, putting things right all these centuries, is coming together right now in this baptism. So Jesus is setting the example of obedience that we would all soon be following, not unlike the Lord's Supper, which is to come later. So we immerse people in water because Jesus did it, and the early church soon followed up on that. So you read in the book of Acts, the day of Pentecost, Again, I I bring up the weird things, some weird things happening in in Acts chapter 2 where tongues of fire on people, they're speaking in different languages, a lot of weird stuff going on. And uh, people are wondering what's happening. Peter then says, quiet down everybody, and he has one of the great opening lines of any sermon ever. He says, these people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. As if to say, eh, if it was one in the morning, that'd be a different story. Jesus' followers were known to have a little bit of wine now and again. But it's nine in the morning. And then he explains, he goes through the history and explains that Jesus is the culmination of Old Testament prophecies and that he's Lord Messiah. And then the people say, well, what should we do about it? Peter answers this way, repent and be baptized from Acts 2, verse 38 every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, this example gets established that when people come to the point of wanting to put their faith in Jesus, they engage in this outward act, this physical act. We we can't be baptized over Zoom. It doesn't work that way. we, We have to physically take our bodies, put them underwater, or in some cases have them sprinkled with water. So if that's the outward invisible sign of the water, what's the inward and invisible grace that's happening? The Apostle Paul tackles this in his letter to the Romans in chapter 6, the first four verses. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And so, baptism is a symbol of death. There's a symbolism of of going under the water and then being raised to new life with him, just as Jesus was miraculously raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. And it is a one-time act It's a sign of your commitment to Jesus for the rest of your life. And in that way, it's like a wedding. You have one wedding. You and your spouse don't have to have a marriage ceremony again. Those vows you said are efficacious for you for your whole life, so long as you're faithful to your vows. But as I wrap up 
this first section on baptism, I want to make sure we tie it back into community. So when we attend a baptism service, we have one, as Ben mentioned, coming up on the 27th. In the same way that a married couple attending a wedding can be reminded of their marriage vows, so all of us, the community of baptized believers, can have our faith strengthened as we remember our own baptisms. And in so doing, we renew our vows in that moment as this, this, this outward and visible sign of baptism reminds us of the inward and visible grace of new life in Christ is played out in front of us. That's what happened actually for me this summer when I, when I was a part of this baptism. Um, baptism sometimes, for, for, you know, I got baptized, I was baptized as an infant, I baptized uh, as a believer, as an adult in college. It, it wasn't a particularly emotional event, it was just something I said, you know, I wanna follow through in obedience, and I did it, and I'm glad I did. It was a great experience at this Sunday night service at this church that I was a part of in Evanston. For some people, it is very emotional. And so I remember this past summer, uh, one person in particular stepped into the little tub and she was already crying. And it got me choked up because I started thinking about this, this young woman who had come to faith through our high school ministry. And she came, she, she was open to the work of God in her life because of some challenges that she was facing in her life. I, I, I'm not sure that she would have had any interest in God uh, other than the fact that she was kind of going through this crisis. And as a result of this crisis, she opens her heart up to God. She puts her faith in Jesus. And she had been walking with him for the last couple of years. And so in that moment, there was just something really powerful happening. And she had invited her family to, to be there. And of course, and then that just got me thinking about the new life that we all get to experience in Jesus. It was this, this moment of being reminded what a joy it is to be a part of this community. When we see the joy of how Jesus has changed someone and the joy of their obedience in being baptized, it's, it's powerful. It's a holy mystery and, and it's a joy for the whole community to get to participate in. So that's baptism. The second and final sacrament that we're gonna discuss today is the one I mentioned first. It's communion, also known as the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. So where does this come from? Well, it really starts in the book of Exodus. And I'll, I'll go quickly for those of you that have heard this plenty of times. Um, you can get a summary. You can either read the book of Exodus or you can watch the movie Prince of Egypt. Really, same, same. A uh, little more music in the movie. But uh, the Israelites are in captivity. They're in slavery in, in Egypt. Moses is chosen as deliverer. And he goes to Pharaoh and long series of events, finally this last sign is given uh, to the Egyptians that the firstborn will be killed in every Egyptian household, but the angel of death passes over the Hebrew households who have killed a lamb. Clearly this, we find out later, this is a, a pointing forward to the, the lamb of God, Jesus, who takes away the sins of the world, but sacrifices this lamb, puts the blood over the doorposts. He passes over those houses and the last night that they have together, they don't have time to bake bread with yeast. They have to, to go quickly. And so they have unleavened bread, which is why we have this, you know, in some places, we, we have this matzah that we will be using later as a sign. It's like a cracker because there was no time to, to bake bread with, with yeast in it for it to rise. And so then this celebration of remembering the Passover gets passed along. Fast forward to... Uh, 
the Thursday before Jesus has died, is, is to die, and he is with his disciples together, what we call Maundy Thursday or Holy Thursday. They're celebrating the Passover meal, and Jesus reinterprets Passover in their midst. He, in essence, points to himself in that moment. Here's how theologian N.T. Wright talks about the meal. He says, if we want to understand and be nourished by what happened on Calvary, this meal is the place to start. Jesus was drawing into one event, a millennium and more of Jewish celebrations, and drawing the meaning of the whole meal onto himself, saying that the forgiveness of the sins of Israel and the whole world was happening in and through him. So the whole thing is very symbolic. It was an outward and visible sign, bread and wine. So what is the inward and invisible grace? Well, that is communion with God. The Anglican Catechesis, which is just an explanation of beliefs, says it this way. As my body is nourished by the bread and wine, my soul is strengthened by the body and blood of Christ. I receive God's forgiveness and I am renewed in the love and unity of the body of Christ, the church. The passage that I think helps me understand what this inward grace is all about uh, is John chapter 6, 53 and 54, where Jesus says, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. It's a reminder that we have been given eternal life through his death and resurrection. It's where we gain life for our empty souls. And if baptism is like the wedding, then communion is like date night. Those of you that are married, uh, I hope you have date night more than once a month, but like a marriage without dates won't thrive, so a relationship with God without meeting with God on a regular basis won't either. Communion is a reminder that Jesus' body and blood is enough, and it's what our faith rests on. And don't miss this. It is a physical act. Other traditions, namely Catholics, believe that something much more than symbolic is happening. They believe that Jesus was speaking literally when he said, this is my body. Their, their belief is that in the act of celebrating the Lord's Supper, the actual body and blood of Jesus is present. It's not the understanding of the Protestant church, but whether you see it as the actual body and blood or see it as a symbol, what's important is that it is a physical act. It's a reminder that our bodies are important, eating and drinking. Jesus, Jesus was not a mystical, shadowy figure. He was a person. He had a body. He lived and he walked. He ate with his followers, men and women, young people, old people. And he invites us to use our bodies to participate in this holy mystery. Jesus wasn't, didn't float in like an angel. He didn't send a holy letter. He came in a body, and then he left a very physical act of remembrance. He could have said, uh, I'm, I'm going to come up with this hand motion, you know, that that's going to be how you remember. He didn't. He said, I want you to use your mouths to eat the bread and drink the cup. Taste and experience it with your senses. Now, there, there was, of course, incredible significance in the bread and the wine. 
What the disciples didn't know on that Thursday night, but would soon discover, is that he was looking ahead to what was to happen. His body was about to be broken. His blood was going to be shed. But that was not the end of the story. The culmination of dozens of prophecies, thousands of years of God's story with his people was going to be finally realized in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he left us this meal to remember it. In fact, Paul says that when we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And this would be a a good enough a time as any to say that there might be some of you here who have never put their faith in Jesus before. And today might be the day that you would want to do that. Or maybe you've been waiting on the sidelines, you're ready to join the community in obedience and, and baptism, and maybe the 27th would be a good time for that. Or maybe the, the sacrament of communion for you has always been like, a, like it was for me as a child. Like, I don't really know why I'm doing this. It's just something, it's that thing you did before you got to go out to eat after church. I hope you will uh, perhaps be more ready to meet with Christ in a new way today. Maybe, maybe this will be the first time it, it actually kind of clicks for you. And again, those of you joining us online, I hope you will get something physical to eat and drink as we do that here today. And it's important to understand that we do this as a community. Right after that story where where Peter tells the people that they should be baptized in Acts chapter two, it says the following, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So it's what they did when they came together as a community. Later in the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 7, it says, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. This was the example of the community coming together on a weekly basis to break bread together. There's, there's just no substitute for the regular gathering in person of followers of Jesus. Now, some of you may have heard about this. this I've kind of heard echoes of this, uh, that virtual reality church was coming. And, you know, online church, of course, that's old hat. It's been, you know, going in most churches for two years and, and you know, long before that in other places. But uh, I actually, a friend of mine sent me a, a screenshot of like a Twitter thing of a church that was doing VR church. And they said, in fact, we had so many people come this week, we had to add a second room, which I don't, I don't even understand. Like, but it's, it's all pretend. It's virtual, like, like, are you going to have to do a capital campaign to build another virtual church? I don't get, like, can we just make the room bigger? Like, clickety-clack and boom, it's bigger? Anyway, I don't get it. But they were very excited that so many people showed up with their headsets to virtual church. And, you know, I'm, I'm all for innovation. I am all for people, f- what, however they can come to know Jesus, I am for it. As long as that experience eventually leads those people into physical interaction with others. Um, Again, COVID concerns aside, I'm just talking about at some point along the way, that's where we need to move people. This week, Tish Harrison Warren, an Anglican priest and author, wrote an article, a very provocative article uh, in the New York Times, advocating for churches to end their online services. It's a discussion that we will not be having here. Christ Church will continue to offer it for a number of reasons, but what she said was important. She said this, offering church online implicitly makes embodiment elective. It presents in-person gatherings as something we can opt in or out of with little consequence. It assumes that 
Embodiment is more of a consumer preference, like whether or not you buy hardwood floors, than a necessity, like whether or not you have shelter. End quote. Her point is Jesus inhabited a body. He chose physical food and drink as the symbol of communion with him. And, and to those of you joining us online, we're, we're glad you're with us. You're with us. We, we look forward to having you join us again at one of our services soon. This community, if we are to find renewal, we must find it, if not now, then eventually, physically with each other. An acquaintance of mine named Colin wrote this about the need for being together in person. He said, Christians need to hear the babies crying in church. They need to see the reddened eyes of a friend across the aisle. They need to chat with the recovering drug addict who shows up early but still sits in the back row. They need to taste the bread and wine. They need to feel the musician's crescendo toward the assurance of hope and what our senses can't yet perceive. It's messy, but we need each other. If we're to find renewal as a community, we can find it in a lot of places, but certainly one of those places is in these holy mysteries that he has left for us. And the greatest thing now is that I get to stop talking about communion and we get to experience it together. And uh, we invite all of you who have put your faith in Jesus to participate. I want to add this one thing uh, before we go to the table. This is again from the Anglican Catechesis about communion. The question there is, what is required of you when you come to receive Holy Communion? And the answer given is, I am to examine myself. Do I truly repent of my sins and intend to lead a new life in Christ? Do I have a living faith in God's mercy through Christ and remember his atoning death with a thankful heart? And have I shown love and forgiveness to all people? So we usually just say, if you put your faith in Jesus, you're welcome to join us. I want to add to that uh, today as we focus on what it means to be a sacramental community. We're going to just take a moment, really 60 seconds, to pause uh, to respond to this idea of examining yourself. Are there hidden sins in your life? Are you living out your faith in a way that represents the best example of your faith? Are there broken relationships in your life that need mending? Both Jesus and Paul talk about the importance of taking care of that, the, the inner work in your heart, before you come to the altar, as it were. So we will pause for a moment to examine our hearts to reflect on uh, what's going on in our inner life before we turn our attention to the elements.